Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin, a journalist with over two decades of experience. I started covering crypto five years ago, and as a senior editor at Forbes, was the first mainstream media reporter to cover cryptocurrency full-time. Subscribe to Unchained on YouTube, where you can watch the videos of me and my guests. Go to youtube.com slash C slash Unchained Podcast and subscribe today. This show is sponsored by Gods Unchained, the digital card game that offers true ownership to players. It's fun, engaging, competitive, and has more NFTs than any other Ethereum game on the market. You can try the game out at playgu.co slash Unchained Pod. Crypto.com is waiving the 3.5% credit card fee for all crypto purchases until the end of September. Download the Crypto.com app today. This is the sixth in the Why Bitcoin Now series, in which you take a closer look at Bitcoin in the context of macroeconomic forces, including the pandemic and the economic response. And today's episode will focus on Bitcoin's monetary policy. Here to discuss are Andreas M. Antonopoulos, speaker, educator, and author of Mastering Bitcoin, Mastering Ethereum, and the Internet of Money, Volumes 1, 2, and 3, and Dan Held, Growth Lead at Kraken. Disclosure, before we begin, Kraken is a previous sponsor of my shows. Welcome, Andreas and Dan. Hello. Thanks for having me. To start, let's define what we're going to discuss today. What is a monetary policy? I guess I can go ahead. So a monetary policy is what a a uh, government or central bank would define uh, more more eloquently a central bank would define as its uh, issuance schedule of currency and or the inflation targets or other socioeconomic targets uh, the recently the fed has described its monetary policy as to have accomplishing uh, several other factors outside of just like an inflation rate uh, for example i think they're focusing on solving inequality now as well so that's how I would define a mon- monetary policy. Uh, the, and also note that this is distinctly distinctly different than a fiscal policy. Uh, fiscal being more associated with the federal government or on a on a government level, which uh, would be you know around the um, the spending on different programs for uh, you know Medicaid, Medicare, or Social Security. Andreas, do you have any thoughts? Yeah, I, from from a mechanical perspective, I think of this as um, you have central banks that are quasi-independent, and they have a bunch of dials. And what they're trying to do with these dials is adjust um, the supply of money itself in order to um, affect the velocity of money through the economy. Um, and they use different dials. Some of them are... Um, Things like uh, the balance sheet dial, which is a relatively new one, where the um, central bank goes in and buys um, things on the market like treasuries. Um, The most important dial, the the traditional dial, is the overnight um, interest rate for interbank lending at the Federal Reserve window, which is basically where banks park their cash overnight 
Um, and by tweaking that dial, they can control how much uh, money is um, effectively in circulation versus parked at the Fed. And, and through that, they can then affect um, uh, other parameters. Uh, I think one of the things that I find fascinating about monetary policy is that, um, first of all, it's extremely variable and subject to political pressure, which is why central banks are quasi-independent. The other thing is that, in many cases, tweaking the dial has a delayed effect. Um, and and this is tricky. Now, this is a bit like, you know, you start changing the, the rudder on a ship and it turns three miles later. Um, because of this delayed effect, um, there's it, it's not always clear how much control the central bank actually has over the thing they're changing because they don't change that thing directly. They tweak one of the other dials, and then they have this delayed effect. So, for example, inflation, they don't control inflation directly. They control interest rates on the overnight window, and the secondary effect happens later. Would you agree with that, Dan? I would, and there's a useful analogy that I came up with, which is imagine you've got the Fed, and the Fed is driving the car, which is the economy. The Fed can't see into the future, so you can't see out your front windshield, but you can use your rear view mirror. So they're looking at historical data, and they're using that to influence which levers they press. So they look historically, they look at the road behind them, and they go, okay, it's, it's gone to the left, we need to make it go back to the right. And so they press the brakes. But the problem is, like you mentioned, the brakes don't kick in for another mile. <laughs> so it's a little bit tricky. And they're, they're steering the steering wheel and pressing the gas. But these are all very delayed reactions to historical information. Um, you know, really at the core root of this, it's a very tricky information problem and a very tricky uh, influence problem where they don't have, you know, a really tight latency. You know, there's not a really low latency there between their actions and their outcome. I love that analogy because it immediately makes makes me think of how if if the central bank of the U.S. dollar is a car driven by a rear view mirror, um, Bitcoin is a train and it's on rails. We know exactly where it's going. Yeah, well, I was just about to say that one of the most fascinating things about the way that this discussion started is how different it sounds from Bitcoin's monetary policy, which we're going to dive into deeply. And I would say, um, at least to my mind, probably the most prominent feature of Bitcoin's monetary policy is the cap on its money supply since the software will stop minting new Bitcoins once 21 million coins are reached. Why is the cap on the money supply such a core feature to Bitcoin's monetary policy? And how would you say that it differs from other previous forms of money? Dan, do you want to go for that one? Sure. Um, the disinflationary, so it's not technically a deflationary monetary policy. It's a disinflationary monetary policy. It's a decreasing issuance rate, or you could call it an inflation rate, but there's a bit of a nuance to some people's definition of interest, uh, sorry, infl uh, inflation rate versus issuance rate. But essentially, Bitcoin issues Bitcoin, uh, the Bitcoin protocol issues Bitcoin at a decreasing rate over time. And those, those moments in which the uh, newly minted coins uh, decreases are called halving events. And the reason why the a monetary policy with a hard cap is important is because Satoshi was trying to solve for a couple different problems. One was the impossibility of choosing a proper rate of inflation. And so, so Satoshi actually jokes about this a little bit where he goes, you know, if we could trust someone to take data outside of Bitcoin's blockchain and, 
and bring it in accurately, then might you know there might be a way to adjust the supply in reaction to demand. Uh, but I think he's saying that a little bit in a jokingly manner. Uh, you know, you can't really trust anyone on the outside to pipe in that data in a totally trustless manner. There's always some degree of trust that you would have to have. And what I think he fundamentally understood was that the inflation rate or the proper rate of inflation is impossible to determine. So let's say after Bitcoin's uh, Bitcoin has totally issued 21 million coins, there is no proper way to choose the right inflation rate. There's an information problem in which for us to choose the proper rate of inflation, we would have to digest trillions of data points a second. Every single consumer's purchasing behavior all across the world, we'd have to uh, ingest that, parse it, and analyze it instantaneously. And there's just no, there's no way we can do that. And so what Satoshi decided to instead was set the rate at zero long term. So as soon as all the Bitcoin are issued, the inflation rate is 0%. Um, that also reduces a political attack vector. When the rate of inflation is constantly and subjectively up to discussion, then that will be used as a lever for certain powerful groups to influence the inflation rate for their benefit. Um, and, you know, we commonly refer to this in the space as the Cantillion effect. I'm not sure how many people outside of crypto have ever heard of that before, but it's essentially those closest to the money printing benefit from it. So those closest to the monetary policy and influencing it will likely benefit from it. I think it's also a battle between savers and um, debtors uh, in that um, inflation can be used to shift uh, gains from those who save um, to um, those who have debt um, by making debt cheaper and um, removing uh, the burden of paying back the debt by making it payable in less and less and less valuable money. That's one of the arguments against the current U.S. dollar monetary policy is that um, the government is effectively destroying savings, making it impossible for people to save because the interest rate you get from your bank or any form of savings is minuscule to zero. Um, and, but the benefit that has for the government is that that makes the $23 trillion worth of debt or however many we have now, um, those are denominated in dollars. So the more inflation you have, the less value that has. So essentially the debt gets smaller in, in, in purchasing value um, over time because of inflation. And that's another thing that, um, that, that is very subject to political manipulation. If you can shift power between debtors and savers, you can, you can very much manipulate the economy. Yeah. And one other thing I would add is that um, I read in Savadeen Amos's book, The Bitcoin Standard, and it's so obvious. And yet just the simple statement um, struck me. He wrote, until the invention of Bitcoin, scarcity was always relative, never absolute. And it is true, even if you think about other scarce forms of money, such as gold, you know, it's not something where there's a finite amount. So, um, you know, the fact that that can be known in advance about Bitcoin is pretty remarkable. And um, well, actually, so let, let's actually maybe dive into a little bit more the the comparison of Bitcoin to gold, because it is often called digital gold. And I did just point out one difference between them. And yet, they are often compared. So how how would you say they're similar? And how would you say they're different? It's all about the predictability of the monetary policy. I think that at the core root of, of what we're all talking about here with Bitcoin, gold, fiat, 
is the predictability of it. And with the supply, we for sure under, we concretely 100% know that it will only be 21 million. With gold, we know that it was scarce, scarce on earth. But if we zoom out and we look at the solar system and we look at these asteroids circling around the earth and other in other parts of the solar system, they contain large, large amounts of gold. So we know certainly that gold is only finite on earth. We don't exactly know how finite it is. And then we know that it is not finite outside of earth. So gold was only used as a mechanism for money because that was what we had at the time. But with Bitcoin, with digital gold, we can concretely understand that there are only 21 million and that assurance, that confidence, that absolute confidence in that number means that trust can flow into Bitcoin, which brings in deeper liquidity, which brings in more and more folks believing in Bitcoin and understanding it and placing their money, which money is a representation of time, energy, and trust, you know, placing that into the Bitcoin protocol. I, I would add to that that there are a number of properties that are um, unique and fundamentally different in Bitcoin as compared to gold that actually make it much more powerful than traditional gold. As someone who has investments in, in gold and Bitcoin, you know, it's always been a, a very difficult problem, which is owning gold is not easy. Uh, and using gold as a store of value isn't easy, even for its main purpose, which is store of value, let alone secondary purposes like medium of exchange. Um, the, the bottom line is that I do not have the technical capability to verify that physical gold that I hold is actually gold. Um, it's, it's not easy to do and to do it consistently and to do it safely. It's difficult to store um, securely and it's difficult to, it's extremely difficult to transport securely um, or even at all because it's damn heavy. If you've ever <laughs> held cold, you know that. Um, it's, um, it, so, so it has a number of problematic um, properties that uh, physical gold has a number of problematic properties. Uh, it's, it's much easier to confiscate, uh, seize, freeze, or um, put such conditions on its um, storage that it's very, very difficult for many people around the world to actually hold it. So all of these properties, especially the forgeability aspect, um, are resolved in Bitcoin. Bitcoin is infinitely transportable um, with, with great ease. It, it has zero weight. Um, um, it can be subdivided very, very finely. And um, it is also absolutely unforgeable and easily verifiable as um, genuine uh, and real Bitcoin. So all of these properties make it a much better store of value. And then you add on top of that, that Bitcoin also has a number of very strong properties as a medium of exchange. Not yet, perhaps, for the smaller payments that you might think of, the buying of a cup of coffee example that we always think of. Um, but certainly um, for me as a business person, um, getting paid and paying uh, payroll and getting paid for jobs, which are slightly larger payments, um, but, but often across borders, it's a fantastic medium of exchange. Um, and for that purpose, it's very, very suitable. And I could never use gold like that. So Bitcoin is digital gold. If digital gold put on a cape and became uh, a super gold. <laughs> yeah. And one other aspect of the cap that I think has been crucial um, to the success of Bitcoin was in helping it get off the ground. So why why would you say that is? 
um, you know, what, <laughs> <laughs> and and specifically, how did that play out with you know miners and and um, people wanting to buy it and and stuff like that? Well, it, it's an interesting uh, idea. And first of all, to define FOMO, I said jokingly, FOMO, fear of missing out. But um, but, but I think that's true. But it is but... very true. Yeah. <laughs> and so I, I think there's two aspects to this. And, and, and often there's a discussion in, in Bitcoin about the, the, the utility um, versus scarcity aspect of Bitcoin as a chicken and egg problem. You know, one of the things we celebrate in Bitcoin, I even have a mug with, with a symbol for it, is Pizza Day. Right. Uh, Pizza Day represents the utility moment, the moments when Bitcoin was used to buy something that somebody wanted. Um, and before that, its value um, wasn't really yet defined. Interestingly enough, though, you could make an argument that its scarcity had not yet really become noticeable. Um, so that's another reason why its value wasn't defined. So in, in the genesis of Bitcoin, one of the big discussions and debates, uh, I think, is um, did Bitcoin need to become useful before it became valuable, or did the scarcity uh, make it valuable even before it was really useful? Um, and there's differing arguments on these. I think they both work hand in hand. But this scarcity is becoming more and more and more noticeable over time. Um, with each halving, it gets felt in the markets very acutely, um, because, of course, miners do sell a, a big proportion of their uh, newly minted Bitcoin in order to pay electricity. That's a, a specific amount of Bitcoin every day that has, to, that has to be picked up by someone buying just for the price to remain stable. Um, and as long as there are more people buying than that, then that pushes the price up. So the scarcity is being felt in the market, especially after each halving. Um, and that is of course, generating fear of missing out. Um, arithmetically, a lot of people say, well, you know, if you think about it, 21 million Bitcoin is, is far less than the, I don't know, 40, 50 million millionaires that exist on the planet. So that means that not even every millionaire on the planet can have one Bitcoin. When you grasp these little nuances, it becomes very clear that, that the scarcity is getting more and more real over time. And, and there's a couple of really fun things to, uh, to uh, kind of break out here and talk about. So one is the decimal. Where Satoshi put the decimal at 21 million versus 21 billion or 210 billion. I thought that was a really interesting you know, decision to dig into in terms of how Satoshi felt that 21 million Bitcoin felt maybe it would feel more scarce than 21 billion. I think Satoshi, you know, this was the first cryptocurrency that actually worked. There had been other failed attempts before. and I'm not sure if he was super confident that it was going to work. You know, I think we all forget that Bitcoin didn't have a price for a year and a half. Like that's a long time. Oh, Satoshi so Nakamoto I, was definitely the first Bitcoin skeptic. He didn't think it was going to work necessarily. <laughs> it was an experiment to him. Yeah. And I think he largely in his language echoes that with the other developers of him encouraging them to experiment with going, hey, you should go try this out for XYZ sort of utility or application. Um, and he wasn't sure as well that he, he hypothesized that scarcity alone could be the driving factor behind price appreciation, but he wasn't sure. And he encouraged other people to go, you know, use Bitcoin for different types of applications, you know, with the hypothesis that that might drive demand. Um, There's a lovely little myth that actually the 21 million was a mistake. And in the calculation of halvings, um, Satoshi was actually aiming for 42 million. Yeah. Um, 
exactly double, which is, of course, the answer to the eternal question of what is the meaning of life, the universe, and everything. <laughs> 42. Yeah, and, we find it everywhere. But then also, and that's from uh, Douglas Adams's book, which I'm just like, Hitchhiker's Guide, to the, Guide to the Galaxy, right? Mm -hmm. um, but then also, if if that were the case, which there's something about that that seems plausible, which is the fact that then the block reward would have started at 100 Bitcoins per um, per block rather than 50, which is where the software started. So mm -hmm. I also thought that was a very interesting theory. Um, but one other comment that I wanted to make, so I'm asking these questions, but then I also sort of want yeah. to jump in, which is that, um, you know, I feel like having that specific number, and you're right, Dan, it, it almost doesn't matter what the number is. It's just the fact that you can know what the number is, and mm -hmm. that allows you to make calculations, right? So like with a miner, they could calculate, okay, th like they have actual numbers that they can plug into an equation and be like, will I be profitable? And they can figure out the answer to that, right? So if they, um, for instance, know, okay, there's going to be 21 million Bitcoins ever, um, you know, at these different points in time, this will be the supply, um, you know, then they can calculate that against known money supplies. You know, I've seen comparisons of uh, the, the, you know, trillions of dollars that are in gold currently or the M0 money supply or the M1 money supply or whatever. And so they can make projections. Um, but then also they can, um, once the price of Bitcoin became known or once there was a price on Bitcoin, then they could also use that to then plug in whether or not their mining operation would be profitable. So, um, so I, I feel like all those things were, were helpful to people who, you know, heard about this new thing, didn't know whether it was going to take off and yet could do math to kind of figure out, okay, is this worth my time and effort? Um, yeah. Oh, go, sorry, go finish up. Oh, well, just the, the last thing also is that I feel like in a way the cap um, creates this sort of like space of digital real estate, you know, like a, like a future Manhattan. If you have this idea that, oh, okay, there's going to be some kind of, you know, future monetary version of Manhattan that will exist in the digital sphere. Sort of Bitcoin was like that. And, you know, obviously Manhattan nowadays is very expensive real estate. Um, so, you know, knowing like, oh, if I get a piece of that, like that's going to grow in value. Like, I feel like the cap is what does that. You know, it creates this like Manhattan sized island. Money serves a very, very important. And I love your thoughts here. And this is, uh, I got really excited once you brought this up because this brings me to an analogy that I find really, really useful that money is the measuring stick of capitalist uh, experiments, which are entrepreneurial efforts. Money is that measuring stick to help us evaluate, is the allocation of capital towards a service or good, building that or creating that, is that a productive utility for society? So if I hypothesize that hot dogs are needed on my street corner and I buy a little stand and I buy the hot dogs and it turns out that no one wanted hot dogs and I fail, Money is the ultimate measuring stick of me allocating capital effectively in the economy to solve problems for humans. And so Bitcoin being a 21 million hard cap is a finite, exact measuring stick. Before, we've got this variable measuring stick, which we're not even sure exactly how many dollars are out in the market. You know, there could be some numbers that are either fudged or, you know, it's hard for us to validate the entire supply of dollars or euros or yen. And with Bitcoin, we can now concretely measure it. And this is a problem that we see in the sciences. If you don't have a precise measurement of a kilogram or a meter, then how would you go evaluate different experiments or different uh, endeavors to measure and try out new things? And so with Bitcoin, it is the first time we have a concrete measuring stick for all business outcomes.
What, one of the uh, interesting conclusions you get from that is that in the end, it doesn't really matter how big a meter is as long as everyone has the same idea. So the actual units doesn't matter. 21 million, um, there are some aspects of um, human cognition where a certain round numbers are more appealing, easier to understand, et cetera, et cetera. We, we, we don't really um, uh, work very well with um, things after the decimal point. Um, so there's an argument to be made that that was a good choice for the, for the primary unit. Um, but, but ultimately, the, the size of the measuring stick doesn't matter. And that comes to a second very important aspect of this, which is ultimately, it's not the money that has the value. It's the things you do with the money that have the value. The, the measuring stick itself um, uh, isn't its length. Uh, and that's important to, to realize. It's not money that has value. It's the things you get for it that have um, value. And um, in order for the measuring stick to work, uh, you have to have that stability. Um, or you have to have very, very massive utility. It's interesting because in all of this discussion, we talk about the U.S. dollar as a currency that doesn't have these characteristics. Yet the U.S. dollar is an incredibly successful currency. It is still the world reserve currency and is likely to remain the world reserve currency for a very long time. So then the question is, why? How can you have a world reserve currency that doesn't have sound monetary properties and solid store value and fixed unit of measurements? I, I think that's a really interesting question to explore. Well, do you want to make a theory? Because I'm curious to know your thoughts on that. I, I, I think it's it's momentum from utility. The U.S. dollar has enormous utility, and as long as most other substitutes um, are inferior in more than one ways, either politically inferior, the yuan, for example, um, in, inferior in terms of um, breadth of trade vis-a-vis uh, -vis other economies and things like that, and inferior for geopolitical reasons, such as control of oil-producing um, economies, uh, it, it, that utility can carry it forward with momentum much longer than, than you would expect on paper, in theory. Um, and of course, that's, that's exactly the thing that is being challenged by Bitcoin. Bitcoin offers a, a viable alternative on certain dimensions. There is no, in my opinion, there is no perfect system. And I, I think it's important to recognize that um, Bitcoin has its own weaknesses. Uh, and so for, from a broader perspective, it's really a matter of which dimensions are important for the thing you're trying to do. Um, and that's why the dollar isn't just going to disappear overnight. Yeah. So I actually I want to ask two questions um, based on these comments. Um, one was I was going to ask you guys if you thought that um, Bitcoin would or, or any digital currency would be successful or whether its monetary policy would still be superior to existing fiat currencies, even without a cap. So, for instance, if there was some kind of per perpetual inflation, which I know other cryptocurrencies um, use. Um, but then the other thing that I was going to ask, which was, um, as we know, Austrian economists have been uh, really enamored with Bitcoin. Uh, but there is like one theory from Austrian econ economics that doesn't quite explain why Bitcoin's been so successful, which is something called the Mises regression theory, which is that the value of a currency comes from 
the likelihood it will continue to be valuable, which means that, you know, in reverse, it, the current value is based on the previous value. And yet Bitcoin got value out of thin air. So I, I'm interested in, in both on your thoughts on both of these things. Yeah. So to, to the second one, I think that a lot of Austrian economics, uh, like economists, they looked at previous commodity monies and hypothesized that as these monies became into existence, that they came out into existence because they previously had utility as a commodity. So we saw different types, you know, some people also look at gold and they claim that gold has some alternative utility for industrial use and or jewelry. But what's funny is that the industrial use for gold is a very new invention. Like, like 200 years ago, gold did not have a utility in an industrial use case. And then if we look Yet at... Yet it still had enormous store of value use. Regardless. Correct. Right. Use, its use is as a store of value. Mm -hmm. um, you know, versus like a lot of these economists go, oh, well, these commodity monies had to have previous like real real world functional utility as for something other than money. But that's the whole point is is function is money. That's its utility. And with gold, people often say that, oh, well, it's also used for jewelry. Well, no, jewelry is the same objective. It's a display of your store value. <laughs> it's not an alternative use. <laughs> it's not an industrial use. It, there are plenty of shiny metals out there that are less scarce and easier to work with than gold. Um, and gold, so gold, you know, main value is it, its utility is its utility in money. Right. And, you know, the, the interesting thing is that um, a lot of these economic analyses of uh, Bitcoin, like like many of the uh, analysis we see um, in the financial space, are based on um, 18th and 19th century um, economic doctrines. So the, the problem with, with all of those is that. Um, we're attempting to analyze something that is truly novel. Uh, it's truly novel in that it doesn't neatly fit into any of the categories that pre-existed on which all of the analytical tools that we're using are currently based. So all of the economic theory that comes from Austrian economics or from Chicago School economics or uh, from any economics or MBA um, type of uh, university training is based on um, certain assumptions about the structure of uh, an industrial, primarily an industrial economy, and certain assumptions um, based on the historical perspective from the 18th, 19th, and early 20th century. These are not new schools of thought. Bitcoin confounds a lot of these analytical tools because it doesn't neatly fit into any of the categories that pre-existed, and it exists in a realm, the internet, which doesn't neatly fit into any of the macroeconomic or even microeconomic analysis of the past. Uh, you know, the, the idea that, that the Internet is an economy of its own um, w was completely controversial less than 15 years ago. Um, and the idea that you could have an entirely intangible economy that transcends borders, completely controversial 15 years ago. The idea that Bitcoin isn't uh, just a currency um, or a stock or a bond or... Um, an investment or a commodity. Um, you know, and a lot of people say, well, what do you think Bitcoin is? is? Is it a bond? Is it a stock? Is it a currency? Is it a commodity? I'll, I'll tell you, the answer is really simple. Bitcoin is a cryptocurrency. And so we don't yet have that category and the analytical tools that come with it. We are now building the analytical tools to be able to rationally speak about how cryptocurrencies behave over longer term uh, and larger economies. Until now, we didn't have any. Uh, and this, is, this has happened before. 
20 years ago, um, there were no financial tools for speaking about derivatives. Simply did not exist in their modern form. They had to develop these. Um, we have entire institutions like the Commodities and Futures um, Organization and Regulator here in the United States that, that, that is half of its regulatory mandate is on something that didn't exist 25 years ago. Um, we yeah. need to have new tools in order to speak intelligently about new things that do not simply fit the behavior or the tools we have in the past. Yeah, this is why I love covering this space because a different analyst will come up with new ways of modeling out the value of Bitcoin or, or other cryptocurrencies. And it's, you know, they're just they're just making it up. And, you know, which is not I'm, I'm not uh, dismissing what they're doing, but I'm just trying to explain everything that we're doing is new. Like it's all we're just creating it on our own. And it, it just mm -hmm. requires our creativity and our smarts and um, yeah, just new ways of looking at the world and trying to figure out what it is that is being built. And I think Spencer Bogart um, wrote this great post saying that um, Bitcoin is sort of like this platypus because, you know, it's this animal that has all these different features from other animals and yet it's mm -hmm. all in one. And that's why the U.S. government has had a hard time classifying things like Bitcoin. You know, the IRS calls it property and the CFTC calls it a commodity and, you know, et cetera. So, but and this um, is this is co cognitive dissonance playing out in, in very tangible and real worlds, uh, in real ways in our um, industry. This cognitive dissonance as to expecting Bitcoin to behave as something that pre-existed and then trying very hard to squeeze it into that category and, and either um, being surprised or even more so being righteously outraged that it doesn't conform to those things. It's a bit like the new automotive industry being um, emerging into a world of, of horses and horse carriages and the analysts are still trying to figure out how it works by uh, estimating uh, annual consumption of hay. And the regulators insisting that it is common sense to have a veterinary um, doctor on staff uh, in any transportation company. And it is um, uh, both unreasonable and dangerous um, for public health not to have one. Uh, and this is the, this is exactly the kind of framework that is being hosted around uh, Bitcoin. To, to kind of wrap up here, and I think it'll go back to your first question, which I don't think we answered. Yeah, um, about so, the inflationary. Yeah, whether there exactly. could be perpetual inflation. Let's see if I can tie this together. So okay. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, okay. <laughs> all right. So while Bitcoin is this new species of money, I mean, it is a wild new exotic species, right? Like this isn't anything of what like we see we've seen before. It's very different from these commodity monies, from fiat, from gold. It, for this new money to permeate into the into to permeate the consciousness of like what is money, what why is Bitcoin better or different than previous monies, and for that to happen, that takes a long time to do. I mean, and so when it comes to Bitcoin is fundamentally different from a technological perspective and from a, a species of money perspective, but it is somewhat the same in terms of the problems that it's solving. And ultimately, it's all about trust that makes it work. And this was Satoshi's first, uh, after the white paper, this was Satoshi's first post. And in the second paragraph, he goes, trust is required to make it all work. We have to trust in the central banks. We have to trust in our banks. And Bitcoin essentially is solving the problem of trust. So while it's a new technology, it solves a very fundamental, I would say, uh, problem that has always existed in humankind.
It solves the problem of trust. Now, tying this back to the monetary policy and an inflation uh, monetary policy with, say, a perpetual inflation rate versus one that has no inflation rate post uh, 21 million issuance or post total issuance. The monetary policy is a really tricky thing in the issuance schedule and the security models are all intertwined. That's what makes this really, really, you know, the more I, I've been in this space for a long time, not, not as long as Andreas or others, but I've, you know, when you first get in, you go, oh, it's digital gold, gold 2.0. And then you're like, you go down the rabbit hole of proof of work and you're like, wow, this is pretty fascinating. And then you get into functions of like the security model and you're like, this is incredible, the intricacies of how this is all tied together. And, and so let me play out a couple here on the issuance schedule. So every four years, the uh, rate of newly minted Bitcoin just drops in half. <clears throat> and that occurs every four years or every 210,000 blocks more accurately until 21 million Bitcoin are created. Um, well, 21 million are never created. 20 million, 999,999 uh, <laughs> Bitcoin points, 9999997. Specifically, if, if you work out the, the, the correct, uh, and I'm going to be pedantic about this, but the correct one is 21 will never be reached. It's an asymptotic that never touches 21 million. Yes. That's why we have Andreas on the call. <laughs> <laughs> he understands the nuance of it and can also explain it simply. Yeah, so with this issuance schedule, why did Satoshi choose every four years and what happens during those halving cycles? You know, Satoshi hypothesized that, you know, Satoshi before Bitcoin had value hypothesized that due to the scarcity of it, that FOMO would be a core critical element in terms of user adoption. He goes, as the price increases, more people become aware of it who then buy in anticipation of the price increasing further. He's essentially describing FOMO in a very volatile market cycle. The market cycles are Bitcoin's main user acquisition method. We all became aware of it probably <clears throat> in 2013 or 2017. I think Andreas was earlier, but you know, for a lot of us in terms of like the big adoption waves, 13 and 17 were huge because the price appreciated. And Bitcoin's monetary policy, since there is no increase in supply when demand increases, that, that creates very volatile moments where the price skyrockets up. And similarly, when demand decreases, the, the price drops. And so that is one, a user acquisition method. But what's also interesting is that as Bitcoin issues coins over, you know, this next hundred years or so, um, and that eventually becomes asymptotic with 21 million, there, there's something called the block reward. And the block reward is what miners receive, which is the block subsidy, the newly minted coins plus transaction fees. And this is Bitcoin's long-term security model, or, or it's been Bitcoin's security model, but when we project and look into the future for its long-term security prospects, Bitcoin's security model is dependent on you know, the subsidy, the newly minted coins keep dropping in each block reward. That has to be compensated by a rise in transaction fees. And those transaction fees come about through these market cycles, where all of a sudden there was a million Bitcoin users and now there's 10 million. So there's many more transacting on-chain. On which means there's many more transaction fees, which means it replaces the subsidy. So when you look into the intricacies of how the monetary policy, the issuance schedule, and the security model are all intertwined, it, it's pretty fascinatingly complex. And so there's some, there's some uh, protocols out there that look at that long-term security model and they hypothesize, what if we had a perpetual rate of inflation? Because we're not sure if the transaction fees will replace the newly minted coins or the subsidy in these block rewards. And you know, that I admire their, their want to go look at that very, very long-term security model 
and look at improving it, but they're also going back and destroying the fundamental thing. This is in my opinion, destroying the fundamental thing that makes Bitcoin or blockchain technology great is that it removes trust. If we have to trust that you won't change your monetary policy again after you've chosen a perpetual rate of inflation, which is impossible to choose, then you've now inserted trust back into the mechanism that we use to remove trust or remove trust with humans. So I definitely want to dive more into this because I have a lot of questions on a lot of what you just said, but this is the latest I've ever done an ad break. You guys were, <laughs> were having such a good discussion. I, I couldn't break it up. So we're going to talk about um, all these issues, uh, you know, involving the cap and changing the issuance and et cetera. But first, a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. How much in fees are you paying for your crypto purchases? Crypto.com is waiving the 3.5% credit card fee for all crypto purchases, which means you can buy crypto with a 0% fee. Apart from your crypto purchases, you can also get a great deal on food and grocery shopping too. Get up to 10% back on Uber Eats, McDonald's, Domino's Pizza, Walmart, and many more when you pay with your MCO Visa card. No card? On the Crypto.com app, buy gift cards and get up to 20% back from merchants like Whole Foods, Safeway, Burger King, Papa John's, and Domino's. Download the Crypto.com app today and enjoy these offers till the end of September. This episode is sponsored by Gods Unchained, the digital card game that offers true ownership to players. Cards are minted on Ethereum, meaning users can trade, sell, and program their assets however they like. A new expansion set has just released, with limited edition cards and ERC-20 chests available for sale. If you miss out, you can hunt these down or previously sold-out chests on third-party sites like Uniswap. This game is the real deal. Helmed by experienced TCG legend Chris Clay of Magic the Gathering, Arena Fame. It's fun, engaging, competitive, and has more NFTs than any other Ethereum game on the market. You can try out the game at playgu.co slash unchainedpod. For the DeFi heads out there looking for a new opportunity, why not go grab some chests? Back to my conversation with Andreas and Dan. So Dan, I was so curious. This was something that I was, you know, kind of looking into before the show. So, you know, as you mentioned, at a certain point when the block reward stops, there will be a transition where miners will be compensated in transaction fees, not in the block reward. And the current um, amount that they earn is uh, from fees is about 9% of the block reward. And so we'd have to see transaction fees 11x by roughly 2140, which is when the uh, new Bitcoins will stop being minted. But I just wondered, you know, if we don't see um, like uh, an increase in the amount of transactions that can happen at layer one, then can transaction fees 11x in that time? Or, or will that require people to pay a lot more per transaction? That's a great question. And when... I'm not sure how many people who are listening to listening to this work in tech, but in tech, we have something called a, key, a KPI, a key performance indicator. And we use it as a calibration method to coordinate our efforts at a company and use that metric to define success. Uh, for example, that might be user signups or number of users trading at Kraken, et cetera. The KPI for this met for what we're looking at right now, which the, the question we're trying to answer is, are transaction fees replacing the block subsidy in the block reward? So are newly minted coins, are they, you know, as those decrease, is that value being replaced by the subsidy? 
And so we can, we can calculate that. That would be our primary KPI. So you could look at transaction fees over the subsidy. Transaction fees in a block divided by the subsidy. And you br brought up that that's at 9%. If we look at that historically and we make it like a rolling 60-day to smooth it out a little bit and we look at this over time on a log curve, it's very much trending in the right direction where 11x sounds like a lot. But Bitcoin moves in really intense cycles where we've all seen it go from 1,000 to 10,000 or 20,000. When that happens, that means there's an, not an equivalent, but a directional rise in transactions and transaction fees. And so we have, seen the trans, we have seen transaction fees replace the subsidy over time. And so it very much is trending in the right direction to where over the next couple halving cycles, we should see it start to predominantly be the value that is compensated to the miners in the block reward. Now, you know, we, we certainly can't predict the future there. We do not know if there will be future speculative bubbles or what Bitcoin's future adoption rate should be. Um, but if Bitcoin doesn't become adopted, if it is remains a more niche sort of a service for humankind where only, you know, let's say 20 million people use it, well, then it's long-term security will be weak. And I think that's what's really interesting. And a really, you know, people, people worry about like, oh, well, if Bitcoin is the world reserve currency that doesn't have a strong security model, like there's not a lot of monetary compensation in the block reward due to transaction fees, well, will that be a bad scenario? It's an impossible scenario because if it is the world reserve currency, there'll be very, very many layer one transaction fees. Right. And but the, what I'm asking is because the number of layer one tran transactions is limited. Um, and right now I feel like a lot of the scaling is focusing on layer two. Uh, so I just wonder, will layer one be big enough to handle, you know, the amount of transactions that will need to be on layer one in order for the miners to get enough fees to you can know, I, be incentivized to do this? Can I add a different, a different perspective here that blends um, the two topics of monetary policy and the technical implementation? Maybe Dan, um, you can, you can uh, jump on that topic as well. From my perspective, the monetary policy creates um, a very specific uh, microeconomic environment. Um, if you think about um, if you think about the the commodity of money that is that is Bitcoin, uh, there's supply and demand. Supply um, because of Bitcoin's monetary policy is fixed and diminishing, um, uh, tapering off asymptomatically and ultimately capped, um, and demand is variable. Uh, and the equilibrium between the two is, is, is the Bitcoin price. Now, if you think about that market, one of its characteristics, uh, its strongest characteristic, and what, what gives it all of this formal, is, is the concept of an inelastic um, market response. The, the supply cannot adapt to a change in price. If you take something else, potatoes, and suddenly potatoes are worth $1,000 a spud, well, um, my garden right on front here is getting plowed up and I'm planting potatoes. Um, so the, the, the price causes an immediate response in the market where production of that good um, increases proportionately to the demand. Um, and the price acts as a mechanism, a signaling mechanism uh, to encourage production of that good. Now, think about uh, Bitcoin supply. So price goes up. Same amount of Bitcoin. In fact, less after four years is going to be produced. There is no elasticity. There, there will not be a response in production. So that's the monetary policy. The same game plays out in transaction fees. And most people don't really see this, but 
if you think about block capacity, the space for transactions that exist in a block, that is also fairly inelastic. Perhaps not as inelastic as the Bitcoin supply, and it's not diminishing over time. But it is still inelastic in that there is a limit, um, and that limit does not respond to surges in demand. So when demand goes up for block capacity, that is a market, it's a microeconomics market determined by the um, supply of block space by miners, which is fixed, and the demand for transaction capacity, which varies based on price signal and also varies based on some optimizations in how transactions are stored, but not that much. So when you have these spikes that Dan was describing, uh, what that does is it pushes up the transaction fee as everybody's trying to cram into this one tiny block uh, all of the transactions because of FOMO. And so the, the price responds accordingly because you have this inelastic block supply. Now, the question is, are these two inelastic supplies the same? And they're not. The block space is actually fixed, but it's not diminishing. Um, there are some aspects of this that create some concerns for the future. One of them is the fact that miners um, can collude in some very creative ways. They can, first of all, collude to restrict supply further um, and um, for, for the capacity of the block. Instead of mining blocks that have a megabyte of or uh, two megs weight of transactions in them, um, they can mine blocks that have fewer transactions all the way to the extreme of mining empty blocks. Now, they can do this like an OPEC of miners, where they collude uh, to reduce the space uh, that they occupy in the block, thereby driving up transaction fees. And this can be profitable, just like OPEC is profitable for the oil-producing countries, and it's very difficult to break out of that collusion. The other thing miners can do, which is very interesting, is they can occupy some of that space um, by basically rigging the auction. If you think about it, the block space is auctioned off to people who bid with their transaction fee and hope to get in. Um, that type of auction has a, an obvious problem, which is that um, you can have rig, um, what they call them, ringers in the auction. A miner can put a transaction up for confirmation with a very high fee, um, driving all of the other transaction bidders to increase their bids to compete against that. And then if um, that transaction is included in the block and that miner has enough hash rate, they have a, a pretty good chance of paying themselves, which means this is a low cost. That depends on how much hash rate they have. But again, this is a tremendous opportunity for collusion because if most miners do that, they're either getting paid when they win the block from their own transactions that they use to rig the auction, or um, they're getting paid by the other miners. <laughs> Someone's getting paid. So then it's a very low-cost way to create um, essentially a cartel for the block capacity. These are real problems, and, and there are a number of proposed solutions, including uh, advocating for a block size increase, which has other undesirable side effects. But I think it's important to know that these things are not finished. Um, it is quite possible that over time, the block size may be increased. If there's enough demand for that, the consensus on that can change. 
But the consensus on the 21 million coins, in my opinion, cannot change because to me, that's a defining characteristic of what Bitcoin is. If you create a coin that has 22 million coins um, issuance, you can do that using the Bitcoin code base. No one will call it Bitcoin and there will still be a number of people who will remain on the one that has a 21 million cap and everyone will call that Bitcoin. So in the end, the only way you can change that number is by forking off another coin that's less valuable. Um, not a winning solution. However, in the block market, the inelastic supply can be dealt with with broad consensus. So over time, people may agree and say, you know what? At this point, the technology has caught up and we can't afford to do four meg blocks. I don't know. It's a very controversial topic. Um, but I think it's important to recognize the similarities of the inelastic supply between the, these two markets, but also the differences in, in how critical these are in terms of principled aspects of consensus uh, and how unchanging they might be. Okay, yeah. So it sounds like you think it is possible people might consider that because, or, or rather it's possible that the um, the amount in transaction fees um, will maybe not be enough on layer one to replace the block reward when there, the time comes. There, okay, well, two things. First of all, and I think this is... By the way, this is the number one question I get uh, for the past eight years. All I've been doing is ask, answering questions about Bitcoin. The most common question I get is, what happens in 140 years when block subsidy stops? And the answer, the, the most important part of this answer is, it doesn't happen in 140 years. It happens today and tomorrow and the day after. Every single day, miners are making the profitability calculation and they are taking into consideration the ratio of fees to subsidy and the current price of Bitcoin to decide if they're profitable and adjust their hash rate. There is no cliff moment where this happens. This happened in 2017. It's happening today. It will continue to happen every day. And so this balance, this equilibrium is dynamically moving uh, through Bitcoin with a heartbeat of 10 minutes every single day. Um, the question is, are fees enough today to maintain the current level of security we need today in in ratio to block subsidy. And given the hash rate today, the answer the miners have given us is yes, resoundingly yes. So then we right, look but... at tomorrow. And so over time, though, this may lead to moments where you have very, very expensive um, transactions. Uh, and, and that tests the market. It tests the market because it puts the use of Bitcoin as a transactional medium of exchange um, uh, against the use of Bitcoin as the FOMO engine of, of um, store value. Uh, in those moments, it becomes a less useful transactional medium of exchange precisely because it has suddenly become such an incredibly powerful FOMO mechanism for store value. So it, it's not one or the other. It's a shift. Okay, I've got a great a thought to append to Andreas's uh, direction here. So uh, Nick Carter wrote a really good article a few weeks ago about this with Ethereum and Bitcoin has the, you know, they both have this fixed parcel of land, this block space, and we are all bidding to get into that block space. So all of the bidders, whether whatever store, you know, if your store of value, medium of exchange or crypto kitties use case, you are bidding for that fixed parcel of real estate. And so you're bidding to get you know a spot on that piece of real estate. Now, when we look at Bitcoin, Bitcoin has two primary use cases, which are store value, gold 2.0, and 
and there is the transactional use case if you want to send large amounts of money across, across borders. Um, what's interesting is that for both Ethereum and Bitcoin, as transaction fees rise, which I think everyone's very acutely aware of um, over the last few months on Ethereum, it's, they've risen to all-time highs. Bitcoin is similarly high relative to historical fees. As those rise, the, the use cases that move the largest amounts of money which are likely likely to be more store of value or maybe like very large smart contract use cases, those will outbid every other use case. So it's a really interesting thing to think about because for Bitcoin, as Andreas brought up, the store of value more FOMO or gold 2.0 folks, if that rises and becomes very, very popular again, and it all, it's always been popular, but as that crowds out, that fixed real estate, it'll push out the medium of exchange use cases because they'll be able to pay more on transaction fees. For example, if I'm wanting to send a million dollars, I'm fine with paying a hundred dollar transaction fee. But if I'm trying to pay for my Netflix using Bitcoin, a hundred dollar transaction fee is super onerous. So I'm not going to do that. Right. But a, is this kind of against the original vision of Bitcoin then? Because you know, I I think a lot of people like the idea of Bitcoin because they think of it as democratizing access to finance. And there is a fly, by the way, for the people who are watching the video, there is a fly in my room. It is attacking my face. I don't know what's going on. Um, but, you know, is it is it possible to fulfill that vision of democratizing finance for everyday people if it's only reduced to um, people who want to send a million dollars worth of Bitcoin being able to do so? Yeah, I mean, I, I wrote a comprehensive thread on like Satoshi's intentions when he launched Bitcoin. I mean, I don't think any of us can go back and, and weigh those intentions and then weigh those perfectly and and spit out like this was 100% Satoshi's intention. I mean, Satoshi, the first message that or the only message he ever put in the Bitcoin blockchain is UK chancellor on the verge of second bailout for banks, not Visa on the verge of raising processing fees. Um, there's also like he references that Bitcoin is digital gold four or five times, or he calls it a precious metal. Sorry. Um, and there's also some functional aspects, like the monetary policy has no supply response, which makes it very poor as a medium of exchange um, because it's not a stable unit of account. It's hard for people to mentally reconcile like, oh, I, I have to like remeasure certain items that I'm purchasing. Like I have to remeasure the purchasing power of my coin constantly. It's a deeply nuanced topic, but yep. so uh, I, have a, I have a slightly different perspective on this, um, if I may interrupt. Um, these two these two visions are not only not um, a direct uh, trade-off, uh, but in fact they're highly synergistic. Here's the thing. Democratizing access to money um, makes sense if that money cannot be subjected to prior restraint, confiscation, freezing, and shutdown. Um, the ability to make a transaction um, at will through the democratization of money um, has to assume an environment in which there is an adversarial relationship uh, with those who do not want you to democratize um, the, the access to money. Uh, and if you ignore that adversarial relationship, then you can assume this is a simple trade-off, which is, uh, listen, it, it's okay. What we do is we just increase the capacity, um, make transactions um, cheaper, and, uh, and then we democratize access to money. The problem is that what you've done in that trade-off is you've required the, mo the money to become more permissions, um, less uh, resistant to prior restraint, um, and less resistant to various types of censorship attacks. 
What ends up happening is exactly what has already happened most recently in Zimbabwe. You have these incredibly versatile microtransaction platforms for mobile digital pay. Um, and then when those threaten the stability of the financial system of uh, Zimbabwe's kleptocracy, they remove permission and those things are shut down. Now, these people also don't have democratic access to money. And they don't have democratic access to money, even though they have a platform for very low fee transactions. You can't separate the two. The, the reason that trade-off is important is because um, unless you have a system that cannot be shut down, having a system that's cheap is worth nothing. Um, the, the cheap system that can be shut down will be shut down at precisely the moment when you need it not to be shut down. Um, and I think people don't appreciate the fact that we are operating in a currency environment that is becoming even more so adversarial than it already is. Uh, this is not simply um, a matter of playing nice um, when uh, you're dealing with considerations that go far beyond the transaction fee. Uh, having a low transaction fee without a network to run it on isn't a useful property of money. Well, so I did want to ask a little bit more about this um uh, me, what's it called? Medium of exchange use of Bitcoin. Um, is the monetary policy of Bitcoin conducive to it being a medium of exchange? Because I'm sure you guys are aware a lot of people will say, oh, I don't want to use Bitcoin to buy coffee because then a year or two from now, I'll realize that I just, I had bought myself a hundred dollar cup of coffee. So I wondered, do you think that we'll see it being used more and more as a store of value and and not really see the medium of exchange use um, gain adoption? Yeah, Mar Marad, a really famous trader in the space, he developed a graph that shows, it's a very rough graph and it's, it's more for visualization purposes, but it shows the evolution of Bitcoin through time. You know, just like a tree or just like a person goes through stages of development from being a, a young child to becoming a, a teenager and an adult in a tree growing up and becoming stronger and stronger and bigger, Bitcoin go, over time has different characteristics. So due to Bitcoin's lack of supply response to increases in demand, that makes the price very volatile. That volatility in price makes it very, very hard to be a unit of account. The unit of account is great with Bitcoin in terms of its you know, our precise measurement of how many coins are out there. You know, there's 21 million, and it gives us a very precise, you know, ruler or measuring stick. However, the purchasing power fluctuates constantly. So, you know, Bitcoin acting as a dollar substitute or a replacement for a world reserve currency in that unit of count aspect from a stable purchasing power perspective is very far away. You know, I think that is many, many decades. Um, Bitcoin's use in a, as a speculative store of value it's had that use case since day one. It's very, very good at that. Um, the increase in speculative, uh, you know, the increase in speculation increases awareness and adoption, which then drives to Andreas's point, then drives medium of exchange. Uh, the more and more people who hold Bitcoin means that the price goes higher and higher, which means that the market, you know, the market cap is higher. The liquidity is deeper. Eventually volatility should start to decrease over many decades which makes the purchasing power more predictable and, and easier to understand and use in a day-to-day -day basis. Um, so I see it as like a multi-decade evolution of a store value, store value plus medium exchange, medium exchange, store value plus unit of account many decades later. So I see it as like 
there isn't a clear cut like, oh, it's only useful for this at this moment. It's more of a gradient over time of, of which one becomes more or less useful. Um, but as we see with transac- transaction fees, to me, it seems very clear that Bitcoin over the next decade or so and, and until layer two technology becomes more prevalent and very widespread and easy to use, that Bitcoin's primary use case will be store of value in the next bull run as transaction fees largely probably go you know, past 50 or $100 per transaction. That crowds out pretty much everything else other than store of value. I, I, I disagree slightly in that I, I think there is a function of medium of exchange today, and it does exist, but it depends on your context and perspective. So there's two aspects to this context. The assumption, can I or should I use it to buy a cup of coffee, it comes with a, with, a, with a set of assumptions around it that are very, very specific. And it's probably the worst example to use, and I am totally guilty. This is the number one example in my book. Um, and, and it was obsolete the moment I wrote it. Um, we, we need to stop thinking about buying a cup of coffee as the primary activity of uh, a medium of exchange system. Um, you know, buying a ticket out of Syria may be a much more interesting uh, use in that context. Uh, at that point, as a medium of exchange, it is all-powerful. I, I, I think um, there, there's two uh, presumptions or pre-assumptions that come to this context. The first one is, at the moment, Bitcoin for most of its users acts as an intermediary economy uh, where you pass things through Bitcoin on the way to somewhere else. So you start with fiat, you own, earn, and live in the fiat world. You take the fiat, you transmute it into um, Bitcoin, and then you either hold it or you convert it into something else, usually by converting it back into fiat after it's traveled somewhere. So this is the Bitcoin as Rails um, perspective. When you look at it from that perspective, the, the economics really make it very challenging to use the medium of exchange. If you're coming from fiat and ending up in fiat, if Bitcoin is simply a highway that has on-ramps and off-ramps, but most of your life is lived in the neighborhoods, that's a whole different ballgame. I can tell you from experience, as someone who lives in the Bitcoin economy and treats it as a circular economy, the, the, the hoarding instinct and volatility and remorse of buying uh, a cup of coffee um, reverse themselves very, very quickly. And here's why. Um, I don't buy Bitcoin. I earn it. I earn it through my labor um, and through my entrepreneurial activities. So when I earn Bitcoin directly, not as fiat, Um, the price volatility works both ways. It cuts both ways. When I pay payroll at the end of the month for my employees and contractors, suppliers, etc., if the price has gone up, that that really um, uh, works nicely for me because um, I give out less of my Bitcoin in order to fulfill my liabilities. Uh, But at the same time, if I'm getting paid next month and the price of Bitcoin goes up, I receive less Bitcoin for the thing I charge because my unit of account is still fiat. So if I'm in that circular economy, um, the, 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 the volatility in purchasing power works for me on liabilities and against me on my receivables, on my um, on my income. And if you take it over a long period of time, it's a wash. Um, I have used Bitcoin in a circular economy like that since it was less than $10 per Bitcoin up until last week when 
I did my um, my payables for the um, for the mid month payables. Um, and and so from that perspective, all of that goes away. I don't have remorse because yes, I paid a thousand dollars for a cup of coffee, but I also got paid ten thousand dollars an hour that month. <laughs> uh, you know, so uh, it balances out. And so so the perspective of I'm an affluent American who has access to alternative mechanisms of payment, and I mostly live in the U.S. dollar economy. Um, visiting Bitcoin as a tourist is very different from the perspective of living in a circular economy. And even more importantly, for all of those people who do not have the comparables, the alternative um, mechanisms of payment. Um, It's easy to say, I'm not buying a cup of coffee with Bitcoin. I'm going to use X when X exists. When X doesn't exist or when X is Zimbabwe dollars, um, then that equation may change rather dramatically. Um, and I, I've heard this from a number of people who don't live in the, in, the, in the environment where they have 20 other things to choose from that are actually pretty damn good as medium of exchange. Yeah, I certainly live in a privileged environment and country. I live in San Francisco, which out of all the cities in the world, we're very, very affluent. So totally understand that I come from a different perspective. Um, I was there with you when we worked at blockchain.com in 2014. At blockchain.com paid everyone in Bitcoin. I was there while I saw thousands of Bitcoin businesses struggle. Mm-hmm. You know, as demand decreased after the 2013 bull run and the price decrease, so the price is a function of price as it increases, increases demand. It's a Bitcoin operates in that really interesting way as that price becomes that that signal to the market, like, hey, come pay attention to this. But it also signals to the businesses like, hey, be prepared as the price goes down, mm-hmm. be prepared for a drop in your customers. Mm-hmm. And it's really, really hard when Bitcoin businesses, when they had, you know, let's say you have, um, you know, you're getting paid in Bitcoin, like this circular economy idea where like everyone gets paid in Bitcoin, you receive your income, like your revenue in Bitcoin it becomes very, very tricky when the price is so volatile to plan out a business operation. Mm-hmm. So let's say I want to deploy a million dollars to go build a building and the price of Bitcoin is at a thousand dollars. Well, if it drops to 500 now, I may not be able to finance that operation. And maybe I can't make that decision within one day because I need to talk to many different stakeholders internally, get legal to sign off, get the permitting in place. So Bitcoin for a business purpose is really, really tough. Um, yeah. I experienced it at my own startup, Zero Block, which we sold to blockchain.com. I saw it at blockchain. You know, when the, that's why we have that more unit of account currency, like the dollar used for business is because it makes it easy for business planning purposes. It is predictably decreasing in value <laughs> over time. Um, yeah, and any sensible business will not operate in one currency, nor will it keep its treasury assets in one currency. Um, diversification applies on a business level just as much as it applies on a personal level, and I don't keep all of my business treasury assets in uh, Bitcoin, or at the same time, I don't keep it all in dollars. Um and being able to diversify and take different levels of risk accordingly actually gives me um, some some great has given me at least some great results over time. Um, but it does take a longer term approach and it is very, very difficult to do planning with a volatile asset. I agree with that. So I was curious, um, you guys, you know, we've been talking about Bitcoin being used as a medium of exchange or store of value unit of account. 
I was so curious because, you know, the idea that Bitcoin works as a store of value is probably one of the predominant um, narratives around Bitcoin. But then obviously we saw with Black Thursday earlier this year in March when Bitcoin was actually surprisingly correlated with the broader markets and um, did experience a precipitous drop on March 12th. Why do you think that uh, investors actually did not turn to Bitcoin at that time, but instead sold it? And how does that affect that theory about Bitcoin being a store of value? It's a great question. A lot of people bring this up, which is, hey, Bitcoin sold off while the risk on assets like equities also sold off. Like, doesn't that, you know, conflict with the idea that Bitcoin's a good store of value? But when we see a liquidity crunch, which is what, you know, that black uh, back in March, w- what we saw there with a huge de- decrease in equities and Bitcoin price, that was a liquidity crunch. And we saw gold sell off tremendously. And gold is a 4,000-year-old store of value. I mean, it is the oldest store, one of the oldest stores of value still in existence that humankind uses. So um, gold also sold off. And so I don't think that, you know, because gold sold off, does that make gold a poor store of value? No. I think in a liquidity crunch, everyone is selling everything they can get their hands on to meet their margin calls. There's a series of cascading margin calls that were essentially crunched and crunched the market to where People are entering this liquidity crunch and they're, they're selling everything they have to meet those margin calls. Now, what we've seen in 2008 and now is that after that moment, months and years later, then the store of value assets like gold start to perform. As people start to price in inflation concerns and pricing concerns over the monetary policy of the government, then those store of value assets start to rise. And so I don't think we're going to see that impact on Bitcoin's price materially um, until you know six to 12 months from now. I think another factor that's playing in this is that um, what we've seen over the past um, 10 years at least is an unprecedented injection of liquidity in in pretty much all of the global economy, but especially in the United States. What that has done is it distorts uh, markets by creating an environment in which more and more and more assets become correlated, not to just to each other, but effectively, they become correlated to one and only one action, which is the degree of stimulus that is being anticipated at the next Fed meeting. Um, and and you, it creates the, these weird phenomena like good news is bad news because it will lead to less stimulus and bad news is good news because it will lead to more stimulus. And um, essentially, more and more of the assets become correlated to that one aspect of stimulus. It, it, investors who have undergone this... Um, this battle to find yields and, you know, keep looking in um, dustier and dustier corners of their portfolio to find yields because they can't generate yield because money is free and everyone's chasing yield and there's too much money out there. Um, they will use Bitcoin and, um, and other um, crypto assets of various types to chase yields. And, and, and that does correlate Bitcoin closer to all of the other assets because it's responding to the same incentives. You know, the majority of people who are invested in Bitcoin in every bubble are not there because they understand the principles of Austrian economics and sound money and the technological robustness of Bitcoin. They're there because, you know, to the moon, coin went up, um, number go up, yay, FOMO. And but that that kind of speculative behavior is both incredibly useful and very valid. But what it means is that um, those investors who chase yield will chase yield into crypto just as much as the other places. Crypto is experiencing 
um, asset inflation as a result of too much money sloshing around in an investor community, especially in the United States. And when there is a supply crunch, um, when there is a liquidity crunch, as Dan described, um, everything goes on the table. And Bitcoin has one of the riskier, more volatile assets. Um, and because of its inelastic behavior, will drop harder and faster than all of the other assets in the short term. That is normal behavior. And in fact, if you if you looked at most of the people who are talking about this, they had predicted that the the um, disaster glee uh, that you see in some Bitcoin circles, where it's like, I hope the economy crashes because then I'm going Bitcoin's going to the moon and I'll have bags. Um, that that disaster romanticism um, is is both uh, creepy as well as uh, irrational. Because in the short term, exactly the opposite happens. In the short term, Bitcoin does get sold off just as hard as the other assets and probably harder because it has this extreme volatility. Um, uh, There are no mechanisms to stop it from dropping just as hard. So uh, I think this is predicted behavior. Uh, Bitcoin is currently much more correlated to other assets than it's ever been before, I think. Um, and in the short term, it is going to bounce around um, with the rest of the economy because scared investors are going to pull out, of, pull their money out of everything. Um, but short term and long term, two different things. I also want to talk about something else that um, in a similar vein is just a question around kind of how things will go against a pretty popular theory. So I'm sure you guys both know of this stock to flow model, which um, really made the rounds and people really glommed onto. And it's basically, you know, saying that the amount of new Bitcoin, the the ratio of um, existing Bitcoin to new Bitcoin being created um, will affect the price. And so as um, that ratio uh, I guess it would be that it increases uh, because the the number of new bitcoins will be decreasing. That um, we should see the price go up at the same time. However, so after this came out, I don't know if you guys saw there was um, a column by Nico Cordero, the chief investment officer and fund manager at Strix Leviathan, and he published an article. Um, kind of saying that the premise of this stock to flow model, which is based on stock to flow in gold and um, how historically that has correlated to the price of gold. He said, well, actually, you know, the author cherry picked the points. And when you look at um, historical data, and he said, quote, gold's market capitalization held valuations between 60 billion and 9 trillion all at the same stock to flow value of 60. And he said a range of 8 trillion is not very indicative of explanatory power and lends itself to the obvious conclusion that other factors drive gold's US dollar valuation. So do you guys think that the stock to flow model works for Bitcoin or um, you know, wh- what's your take on, on this theory? Um, I, I find it interesting as a descriptive mechanism to understand the concept of hardness of money Um, but I don't pay particularly attention as a predictive theory um, to help uh, explain or um, predict um, future price movements. Um, I think hardness of money is an important, a very, very important um, characteristic of money, but it's not the only characteristic of money. And um, money operates in an environment of irrational human beings. 
I, I think the whole ma- rational market um, actor hypothesis, which is, is clearly debunked, could support a theory like stock to flow. Um, but, but the problem is that people respond to, to, to money and other markets uh, things in irrational ways. And they, they evaluate risk in irrational ways. They, um, they far bias um, gain, uh, sorry, they far bias uh, avoiding loss over gaining uh, reward. And so we, we know that these irrational behaviors result in um, weird effects in, in markets. So yeah, great. I mean, stock to flow explains why hard money is hard. Uh, and it also t- gives us a way to understand this, the hardness of Bitcoin vis-a-vis other forms um, of money. Uh, I, I wouldn't take that to be a gospel as to how the price is going to play out at all. No one can predict the future. I don't think any model can out there. It certainly might give us some insight into you know, trajectory-wise what Bitcoin might look like. But I certainly don't prescribe or you know, really weight any sort of model, whether it be stock to flow or any other one, as having like superior or very high level of predictability. Um, I personally find it very interesting because it models out scarcity and it models out the hardness of money and attempts to look at that, looking at precious metals. <clears throat> and I think that's pretty fascinating that we go through that sort of analysis. And that's what makes the Bitcoin community really cool is I love the in-depth economic research done by a wide variety of different individuals where they go explore these different topics. So you know, I haven't dug super deep into the nuances of like how predictable it is. I know there's some controversy as to some folks don't like the methodology or they, there's some holes or flaws in it. Um, I personally haven't dug in super, super deep. I, I would say it does relate to the point I was making earlier, which is that new things require new analytical tools. This is a useful analytical framework that gives us some insights into the hardness of Bitcoin in terms that we can understand in, in something like Bitcoin that is entirely novel in every other characteristic. The reason it's not predictive, um, in, in my opinion, is, is, is because there are so many other things to take into account and, and so many things that remain unanswered. Um, we don't know how the fee market is going to play out. We don't know how Bitcoin's privacy characteristics, which are rather weak, are going to play out. And most importantly, we don't know how the geopolitical environment of uh, currency wars is going to play out in the broader $150 trillion market that is the planet. And, and, and Bitcoin isn't, exists in a vacuum. It exists in that soup of competing forces. Um, and how it plays out will depend on a lot of other factors of which Bitcoin's um, inherent characteristics or design um, trade-offs are only a small, small uh, part. Uh, no one can account for um, unforeseen events. You know, um, how does Bitcoin respond to a pandemic? That's not a question we were asking eight <laughs> months ago. How does the dollar respond to a pandemic? Um, you know, what is China going to do next? We don't know the answers to any of these questions. And 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 the the space, uh, the geopolitical battle of currencies has been heating up for a decade, but it has now reached a point that we've never seen before. So, um, you know, uh, th- that's why I think these, these models, interesting as they are, um, are, are basically operating on only a very, very small part of the broader picture. Um, well, I think they, there is a tendency in our industry to, to, to look for 
um, easy, comforting answers and take things as gospel. I think that's a very dangerous tendency. This is still an experiment, um, and uh, it's gone better than I anticipated and is astonishingly intricate and um, operates very well. But that doesn't mean that it, it, it will always go like that, and it doesn't mean that it can't stumble. Yeah, so this is actually where I wanted to take the conversation next is to ask about these different geopolitical um, forces right now, because obviously with the coronavirus and uh, this unprecedented unprecedented quantitative easing, um, and now this recent announcement by the Fed that they're going to target an average 2% inflation rate. And if that means letting inflation run higher than that for a little while, then that's what they'll do to achieve that. So given all these factors or any other macro forces that you see that could intersect with Bitcoin in an interesting way, how do you think these things will affect Bitcoin's adoption in price over the next one or two years? I mean, Bitcoin is now such a large, like it, from when we were in it way back when it was worth $10, like the evolution of Bitcoin or Bitcoin getting to this level of adoption, liquidity, awareness. We've got a bunch of macro folks like Raul Powell <clears throat> and others really digging in and talking about Dan Puro. These guys really dig in, talk about Bitcoin from a classical like macro perspective. Bitcoin is becoming intertwined with everything. As Bitcoin grows larger and larger, it becomes, a, it becomes part of every geopolitical conversation. It becomes part of every currency conversation, et cetera. So I think that when we look towards Bitcoin's future, it will be intertwined with many different actions in the economy. I remember back in 2013, I think it was, yeah, I think it was 13 where Cyprus was the big narrative in Bitcoin about how Bitcoin could help the Cyprus uh, population for them to get access to basic fundamental, you know, economic uh, uh, rights of like storing value and being. Yeah, the bail-ins that were happening at the time. They got a haircut on their bank accounts. And that was a big narrative driver for Bitcoin back in 2013. And so I think like as Bitcoin grows larger, we're seeing Bitcoin hit the Bloomberg headlines on a weekly basis, which is incredible. I mean, I remember the, <laughs> I remember in 2014, we went to Bloomberg and we're like, wow, this is going to be one of the first times we talk about Bitcoin at Bloomberg. And, you know, to see it evolve this far to where it's part of like, I mean, Trump, even the president of the United States talked about it. You also had, <laughs> yeah, I feel you, Andreas. <laughs> no, I mean, I, 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 I'm thinking back when you said 2014, I'm like, in 2014, Bloomberg invited me as a financial analyst. I mean, imagine how, 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 how empty the barrel was. <laughs> well, Andreas, you're, you're actually a really great speaker for Bitcoin, so I wouldn't I wouldn't be so self-deprecating. But actually, I think when you covered your face, I thought that was in response to Dan's comment about Trump tweeting. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, no, no, not. But, but I mean, that too. Yeah, uh, that too. <laughs> anyway. We had, yeah, and we have Jerome Powell, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, say that Bitcoin is a speculative store of value. I mean, that's incredible. Like we've gone from... It's a very nerdy, very niche group of people on Bitcoin talk forums to the to the highest degree of awareness in terms of like the big stakeholders in the mainstream economy. So Bitcoin will be intimately involved in many major geopolitical conversations in the future is, is the TLDR of <laughs> yeah, you, you, guys- you mentioned you mentioned the Fed um, targeting average inflation rates of two percent. And um, I found that fascinating because the word average um, 
is very misleading because most people have an intuitive understanding of what the word average means, and that intuitive understanding is almost always completely incorrect. Um, let me give you an example. Um, the average person has a greater than average number of arms. Why? Because there are a lot of people with one or no arms. Um, <laughs> And there aren't that many people with three, which means that two arms is a greater than average number of arms, not the average. The average is 1.8 or something like that if you do the math. Um, and this uh, fact relates to the Fed in a sideways manner as follows. In order to get an average of 2%, given the fact that over the past 10 years, we've been dragging along at somewhere between 0.5 and 1.5. That means that they have to go way above 2% in order for the average to calibrate to 2. Um, and so when people hear the Fed is targeting an average of 2%, they think, okay, so they're going to set the, the rate at 2 and, just, and that will be the average. No, they're going to have to set it much higher in order to drag it out in an environment where there are very, very strong deflationary um, um, pressures at the moment. Um, deflationary not because of um, value appreciation of the dollar, but because of a co catastrophic collapse in demand, which is the same kind of deflationary thing you saw in the lost decades of Japan, that the bad kind of deflationary pressure. So in the, in the face of catastrophic collapse in demand, because apparently people who don't have money can't buy shit. Um, the, the end result is that the Fed has to pull much higher than 2% to reach an average of 2%. This is going to have really significant consequences, um, because when you, when you apply these types of percentage numbers to an economy the size of the United States, and you have the momentum of that economy dragging it into the future, when you realize you have overshot that target, that's because you're on the other end of the elbow of the exponential curve and it's way too late. So th this is very dangerous territory. Um, and, and it's unprecedented. I think the word unprecedented during pandemic has been overused. But in monetary terms, we are going through a monetary pandemic um, that is indeed unprecedented. And nobody knows how that's going to play out. So when I used to start my speeches about Bitcoin, I used to say, let me tell you about the world's most radical and unprecedented monetary experiment. And it's not Bitcoin. It's fiat. We have never done this shit before. This is a system that has only existed for 70, 80, 90 years. Um, and we don't know how it works under the current conditions any more than we know how our climate works of 450 parts per million of carbon dioxide. We've never been here before. It might work great, but it's very dangerous when you're talking about a $150 trillion economy when the answer is, we don't know. And one other thing that I wanted to ask about the future and where things are going, and this really intersects with our conversations about things uh, the economy going kind of in a more deflationary uh, direction, such as what happened in Japan versus inflationary. So we're seeing these new innovations come online next year, uh, such as Kraken Financial, which is the arm of Kraken that will be opening as the first crypto bank. And as such, it will not conduct fractional reserve banking and it will not lend, which obviously is not how normal commercial banks um, operate. So let's say over the next 10 years or even five years that 
you know, there's uh, the, there's an increase in the number of crypto banks that exist and they do not engage in fractional reserve banking. And that becomes a big trend. How do you think that would change the economy? Would it dampen entrepreneurship or, you know, I just wonder, um, uh, you know, we've been saying that uh, Bitcoin can have a deflationary aspect to it or disinflationary, um, as Dan mentioned. And we've been talking about the downsides of that with, you know, what happened in Japan. And yet, at the same time, we also know the downfalls of inflationary economies. So when you throw this into the mix, what do you think will happen? While Kraken may be full reserve, there will be other banks that decide to be fractional reserve. And they'll compensate the risk that their depositors are taking through giving them an increased yield. Right. But those won't be crypto banks because to, to qualify for the charter that Kraken Financial got, they have to keep full reserves. But so you're talking about like a normal bank. Yeah, I'm talking about how in a if we're competing for customers, uh, you're going to have full reserve banks, you're going to have fractional reserve banks, and there are different advantageous, you know, setups with each one. And with the fractional reserve banks, they're going to have certain uh, where they lend out their, you deposit your money at a bank, they take those deposits, deposits and they lend them out and they give you a return. You know, it's likely that those banks will be able to offer you a higher rate of return than say a full fractional reserve bank that does not lend out any money. So there are advantageous and disadvantageous traits of both a fractional reserve and full reserve bank. Uh, with Kraken, we see this as an opportunity to layer on many other new types of functions uh, for our customers. You know, we are now much more tied into the banking system. We, we can get around uh, certain sort of choke points in the regulatory models where before we would have to rely on someone else. So now we can be more have a more direct relationship with the mainstream economy. That way we can offer more services to our customers um, there's a wide variety of things that we're exploring there. I, I can't really dig it, dig in or give any sort of concrete details as to what that feature or what that function might be. Um, just know that this is a giant leap forward in terms of a much more intimate, deeper, stronger tie to the mainstream economy that enables us to offer more crypto services. Um, I, I want to add to that, which is the, 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 the fractional reserve banking is tied very, very closely to the monetary policy. Um, if you take something that has the monetary policy of Bitcoin, lending it out is an extremely risky business. Very, very, very risky. Not just for the lender, but also for the borrower. Um, taking out a loan in Bitcoin that has to be repaid in Bitcoin, given both the volatility, the opportunity of a FOMO bubble event, uh, appreciation storm, um, the overall deflationary characteristics, this is not a monetary system designed for lending. Uh, I think one of the challenges we have in this space is that people take a, um, a monopolistic money system that they understand, which is the fiat system, 194 countries, 194 flags, 194 colorful currencies and monetary policies. And they think of that in terms of a zero-sum game or a winner-take-all system. And from that perspective, you would arrive at the conclusion that, okay, so when Bitcoin replaces all money, then X happens. Um, And I don't think that's ever the case. Uh, I think, in fact, that what Bitcoin did was that it created a mechanism by which um, various types of monies can be created with various types of monetary policies. Bitcoin has an extremely opinionated point of view on monetary policy, which is very suitable for certain things. 
But I don't think that becomes the monopoly dominant system. I don't see any reason why it would. Um, it can become the dominant system for saving. Um, but that doesn't mean that there aren't other monies, uh, both national fiat and um, other monies that exist in other cryptocurrencies. And those may have very different monetary policies and may offer opportunities for lending and things like that. Now, that will mean that they're not as sound money. Um, so I'm not really worried about the scenario of what happens if all money is Bitcoin and therefore lending and entrepreneurial activity stops. Not even what happens if Bitcoin is the dominant form of money. We are so very far from that and don't really have the tools to analyze it. I think we're past the era of uh, a limited number of monies in our planet. Um, we are now in an era of many different systems. And again, this is very controversial and I keep getting flack for this. That doesn't mean that's what I want. That doesn't mean that's what I hope for. I'm simply recognizing what is actually happening, which is humans in their irrational stupidity are going out and creating monies with stupid names that they're giving to their friends and other people. And then they're pursuing these things, even though they most likely have very, very poor value characteristics. I am recognizing that this is happening and I'm recognizing that this is part of human behavior and will likely continue to happen. Um, and, and we just have to accept that. That doesn't mean that Bitcoin is any less in exactly the same way that the, the, the Zimbabwe dollar doing stupid stuff with their economy doesn't change the U.S. economy. Just because there's other money out there that is doing other things doesn't change the value proposition of, of a money that has a different monetary policy. There can be other cryptocurrencies doing um, very, very crazy monetary policies that doesn't remove the value of, of Bitcoin, but it also doesn't mean that the others are going to go away. They're, they're not because of human nature. Yeah, I do think the experimentation allows us to explore in like a Black Scholes model-esque way of like what monetary policies don't work. And it, explain Black Scholes. A Black Scholes model is like simply a random walk. It's like how we go through pricing options. It's how we look at modeling out future steps. So we go, okay, well, what if we took every single random variation from this current moment of a price and modeled that out? And so with these different, you know, the different cryptocurrencies that have existed over the last eight years that I've been in this space, I mean, I've seen, I've seen about like 10,000 cryptocurrencies come and go. So we've certainly seen like that is never going to stop. There will always be new cryptocurrencies created from a more Bitcoinery perspective. I mean, I, I've tried out things like a, I've owned Ethereum. I've mined Prime Coin. I thought Prime Coin, I, Andreas probably remembers that. It's, it's a coin from back in the 14 era, a long, long time ago. But it's... Um, it has something to do with I, prime numbers. Which, yeah, yes. using proof of work to find prime numbers. I thought it was yeah. more useful back when I didn't understand <laughs> proof of work fully. These were all experiments, and, and, and there's so many of them. That's why I call it more of like a Black Shoals, because there's so many random variations of monetary policy, block size, proof of work, proof of stake, hybrids. Hybrid proof of work, proof of stake were really popular back in 14. And so we've seen what doesn't work. And I think that definitely reinforces my belief and my personal opinion that Bitcoin is the like, largest innovation in the space. For me, it, it continually reinforces that Bitcoin's design decisions were made properly as we see it continue to thrive and grow. And we don't know what that means in the future, if it'll continue to thrive and grow, but it's certainly done very well up until this moment. Um, and will Bitcoin be the only currency in the future? 
No, but my personal belief is that it will be the predominant one. If, if it accumulates the largest amount of value stored in it, then it seems to be indicative that that will also be used in the medium of exchange function, where if I know that Andreas and Laura both have Bitcoin, it's likely that they will accept Bitcoin from me versus, uh, you know, this very, very uh, bifurcated world in the future where let's say there's 10,000 uh, currencies that we're basically back to barter. If we have like a thousand different types of currencies or 10,000, I'm not sure if that's really reflective of like a, a new money, which has superior characteristics to all previous forms of money, if that would be the case. Yeah, well, I, I, well, I think one uh, of the things that changes dramatically is when the switching costs um, between different forms of money drop to near zero. Um, and then the, the, the major cost is the time value of money for the time that you hold a specific money, which may be rather weak, um, versus the medium of exchange opportunities that that gives you may actually change this equation of there may be more types of money, um, but if that becomes a routing decision that your wallet makes automatically, um, uh, then um, we may see a, a completely different conception of money, although I do agree with you. W what's fascinating to me is that Bitcoin in its current conception um, which appears uh, to have perfectly chosen all of the parameters or most of the parameters uh, very neatly in this cohesive um, way, it, it is in itself an example of survivor bias, meaning that the reason we talk about Bitcoin and its parameters is because we don't talk about the 30 um, currencies, private cryptography-based currencies that came before Bitcoin that all failed because one of those parameters wasn't set up correctly. Uh, we talk about Bitcoin because it's still around um, and therefore has proven through persistence um, that those parameters sustain it. And the longer that narrative continues, the stronger it gets. It's surviving is one of its measurable characteristics that strengthens its possibility of surviving in the future and the narrative that a newbie hears, but they hear Bitcoin's dead again, and then they find out that's not actually true, and that causes a moment of cognitive dissonance. What do you mean it's not dead? I thought it was dead when the Japanese CEO was arrested, et cetera, et cetera. Um, co that con moment of cognitive dissonance is a very strong point of narrative that reinforces the idea that Bitcoin is perfectly tuned, at least in the current context we live in. All right. So I honestly, we we could just go forever. I honestly really did have quite a number of other questions that I didn't get to, but I think through the, uh, you know, various comments we've made, we managed to touch on all the topics. This is, I think, the longest episode I've ever done. <laughs> the, the conversation just uh, was super fascinating and kept going. However, um, we uh, should give the listeners more to look up if they're interested in learning more about this. So where can people learn more about each of you? And where do you think they should look if they're interested in to learning more about Bitcoin's monetary policy? I guess I'll go first. Um, you can find me at danheld.com or find me on Twitter at danheld. And I wrote an article about Bitcoin's monetary policy um, that dives into the, the more metaphysical kind of a little bit more abstract idea of that Bitcoin is, you know, Bitcoin is the best application of information theory of money. So I've got a couple articles on my blog 
if you want to read those to give you a more informed, a deeper dive into monetary policy security models. So I wrote an extensive piece on Bitcoin security model um, and other aspects of Bitcoin. And then on Twitter, if you want more sound bitey, very kind of more quippy, quick hits on Bitcoin, that's, that's where you're going to find that sort of content. Um, you can find me as A Antonop, A-A-N-T-O-N-O-P on uh, Twitter and on YouTube where I have um, 500 some uh, videos on various topics around Bitcoin. Honestly, monetary policy isn't a topic that I talk about a lot. Um, most of my focus is on the technology and its uh, social and political implications on, on the future. So if that's interesting to you, um, then you can find that all uh, on my YouTube channel. Great. Well, thank you both so much for coming on, Chain. This has been such a pleasure. Thank you, Laura. Thanks, Laura. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about Andreas, Dan, and Bitcoin, check out the show notes for this episode. Don't forget, you can now watch video recordings of the shows on the Unchained YouTube channel. Go to youtube.com slash C slash Unchained Podcast and subscribe today. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Anthony Yoon, Daniel Ness, and the team at CLK Transcription. Thanks for listening. Thank you.